everyone, and welcome to another Scots Wehey podcast. And today I'm joined by folk singer Iona Fife. But that description only hints at the themes and subjects we're about to talk about. But before we do any of the talking, hello, Iona. Hello, thank you so much for having me on. Oh, no problem at all. And um, let's start with the music. You have um, a new single coming out, Scotland Yet, coming out on the 2nd of April. What can you tell us about it? Well, um, yeah, it was written by Davy Steele in the lead up to the Scottish devolution uh, referendum in 1997, before I was even born. Um, But I think the messaging of it is really important to me today, I think, going into this um, Scottish parliamentary elections. So I think, you know, I've sung a lot of political songs in the past, but haven't recorded them or, you know, stuck my flag to the mask in terms of commercially releasing it. Um, So I just thought I would record it and I did. And it's really upbeat. I didn't want to make this a slow version of it. I wanted it to be upbeat and kind of funky and got got like mandolin on it and stuff. That's that's all there is to it. It's not a a muckle ballad of death and despair. Um, No one gets killed. It's a song of hope. I didn't realise that's when it was, 1979. Um, but it does ring a bell now that you mentioned Oh, that. no, 1997. Sorry, 1997. <laughs> that's my... I'm getting my devolution uh, votes mixed up there. Um, so how did you discover it? Did you know it quite well? Um, I think at Conservatoire, we sung it in a Scots um, performance class um, years and years ago and then I recorded it a few times you know at gigs and and stuff but just never recorded it um but yeah I think it's definitely one I would have learned at conservatoire because you know growing up in the ballad tradition the TMSA type thing um it was often just traditional ballads it wasn't like songs that were penned by other people maybe an Adam McNaughton song or two and a Matt McGinn song but yeah. certainly, you know, it, it was very, very traditional, not singer-songwritery, folk singer-songwriter. So um, a lot of the, the repertoire that I have now, I only got in the last couple of years, whereas the big ballads are the ones that I learned from when I was like nine years old. <laughs> is it similar to other, um, I talk about the conservatoire now, is it similar to other degrees or uh, university courses where it's only really once you've finished that you realise just how much stuff is out there, you know, because you're, you're working to a kind of um, a given prospectus or whatever. And then when you get out there, you realise actually there's a lot more out there than I thought. Yeah. So the community in the conservatory is very insular. Um, the course that I did was the traditional music course. And I started when I was 17 and I finished when I was 19, no, 21. Um and the thing is, is that there was only 16, 18 people on the course. And by the time I graduated, folk had dropped out and, you know, decided to leave. Um, it is very insular. It's very competitive. I personally preferred to learn my ballads and songs from folk clubs and folk festivals and ballad competitions. I found it very unnerving to sit in a class and study elements of folk music. I think it's great that you can do a degree in, in traditional music, but for me, with that rooting and tradition, it, it felt half a synthetic to go into class and, and sit down one-on-one and learn a song from someone, because there's no developed pedagogy of how does one teach a folk song to someone else. Mm-hmm. I would far rather stick on a field recording or like Jeannie Robertson and learn a song orally um, 
but yeah, it's, it's good because not everyone has that grounding and tradition. They might come from, there was a lot of people, um, overseas students and, you know, students from other parts of, of the UK. And it's great because, you know, I made pals that have since moved away and, uh, you know, pals from all over the world, which is really exciting. And we all had that one thing um, in common that we did trad folk music, mostly Scottish. But, you know, we had students, um, you know, we had a student from Tibet who came and did and did the trad music course. And years and years ago, when I applied, it was a BA in Scottish music. So I got, I applied and I got my place when I was 16, but I had to wait when I was 17 to go. Mm -hmm. And in that year, they changed it for BA in Scottish music to be Muzz and traditional music. So BA and a Bachelor of Arts in Scottish music is much more defined um, than a B Muzz in traditional music because it really did take into consideration all traditions. I thought I was a way to do a Scottish music course. And when I got there, there was often more Scandinavian traditional music than there was Scottish music. So I really struggled with that because that wasn't what I signed up for at all. But it was fine. And I got the degree, I got a first class, but it took its toll. Like uh, the most touring I did was when I was in third and fourth year. Yeah. And uh, I had to Skype into classes and it just didn't work. And, you know, I had to wrangle some agreements so that I could leave and, and not do the, the course for a while. And it was difficult. No other degree would have let me go off on tour as much as that degree did. My dissertation was six months late. I didn't think I was going to graduate at all. So I went and did a FLCM at London College of Music in the middle of it, just so I had a qualification. Um, but yeah, I genuinely thought I was going to get kicked out. I did get kicked out of one class and it wasn't the teacher that kicked me out. It was the administrative board who was like, she hasn't been here. Uh, she's dropping that class. But actually I was, I was Skyping into that class from the back of a tour van in Austria. So it was interesting. And I'm so glad that I had like the, the guy who runs it used to be a folk singer called Brian McNeil. Right. And then it changed to a guy called Dr. Joshua Dixon, who um, is from Alaska, but he studied at Aberdeen University. And he was really sympathetic to the fact that I wanted to tour. I already had the opportunities and I was probably going to leave unless he gave me the time off. So he was so nice. Um, and he did everything he could to make me get through that course. Because otherwise I probably just would have dropped out um, because the work was there. Like you don't turn down opportunities that you go to university to get. Because the aim of the game is to become a professional performer. Yeah. And then if that comes along, you don't just say, oh no, I've got my degree in trad music because I want to be a trad musician. No, you just take opportunities and go. But um, yeah, if, I'm pretty sure with half the lecturers, if you said the words, I own a five, they'd be like, <laughs> in a funny way. It sounds to me that's exactly how everyone's being taught at university this year. So <laughs> from the backs of vans and all these things. But uh, it is interesting because I guess when you're going for tours or you're, you know, um, trying to get record deals or whatever, you're not showing your degree. You're saying, this is my back catalogue of work and this is what I've done. Yeah, honestly, like, it's great. The reason that I studied there wasn't to get the piece of paper. It was to have the experience and meet new people and, you know, learn more about the tradition. Like, the one lecturer, probably two lecturers, that really changed the trajectory of my own uh, sense of self-identity was probably Margaret Bennett, Dr. Margaret Bennett, and Rod Patterson. 
Um, and of course, Dr. Margaret Bennett, the mother of Martin Bennett. Um, she's a folklorist, a Gaelic singer, a Scots singer, a song collector, a writer, a publisher, a educator. She's like an all round, I, I don't know. And she... Oh, no. She would immerse herself in like her, her song books. And it sounds weird if you say, oh, I went to my lecture's house for a sleepover, but it wasn't like that. <laughs> she was just amazing. And Rod Patterson as well. He was ace. He was like, he felt like a kind of granddad figure that, because I, I never grew up with grandparents. They had died. Mm -hmm. And he totally, if, I, if it wasn't for Rod Patterson, I probably would have dropped out within first year. Um, really good and and just made me feel like I was meant to be there and yeah he always gave me assurances so I probably learned more from Rod Patterson and Margaret Bennett than than anyone else of course I guess Fiona Hunter and James Ross and there's great tutors there they're all amazing yeah. but these two are the ones that really went over and beyond to make me stay in Glasgow because I was so homesick I just wanted to go back to Huntley like I was like uh, nah. but then by the end of my fourth year I was like Glasgow's my home and I feel like I feel a wee bit like like a Glaswegian a wee bit which is uh, I would have never thought I would say that ever ever but yeah the conservator thing is really interesting I think it's a great opportunity but for me, I knew I just wanted to perform. Uh, you know, I didn't want to be in Kaylee dancing classes and stuff like that. You know, it was, I left school, you know, 17, I left school. I thought that all the social dancing was behind me. And then I got to uni and the first module was like, learn the Kaylee dances and call a Kaylee. And I was like, nope, I'm not keen for this. Um, I was probably a really bad student. Like the stuff that I cared about, I cared about immensely. Like the researching of the ballads and like the, the song element of it, but the other stuff that I didn't care for, I was like, not for it at all. It was, it was interesting. Um, you spoke earlier about um, the ballad tradition and before Christmas, you did a Scots version of The Bleak Midwinter. Um, so why did you decide that you were going to do that? Well, I think then a lot of the, you know, Christmas carols have, you know, never really been translated into Scots. Yeah. And I just really liked the melody. I can't remember how it came about, actually. Me and Michael Biggins just recorded it in, I think, like the space of a day. And we thought, oh, we'll, we'll release it. I think it's nice to raise the profile of Scots by creating art that people are familiar with, but then put it into Scots so that they feel even more familiar with it. And um, something that's coming up in the next three to four months is a translation of Taylor Swift's love story. I just came oh, out the oh. studio last week. We've laid it down. It's got electric guitars on it. It's got mandolin, it's got everything. And it sounds, you know, very, the arrangement is bang on Taylor Swift's arrangement. Um, but it's been translated into Scots. I've, you know, consulted a load of different people to see what their translation would be but it's the one that feels most comfortable to me. And I think that hopefully that will be a really important piece of work for the younger generation to understand that it's okay to speak in Scots. It's okay. It's cool, actually. It's a skill. It's not something that we should be ashamed of because that's what I was ashamed when I was like really young, like I totally self-censored. But um, Taylor Swift just re-released 
her first album because of you know all this master issues and label stuff so the next generation are experiencing her first album for the first time whereas I experienced that first album when I was 9, 10, 11 years old but if a new generation can experience her album and then experience a Scots translation of one of the songs that that would really be cool if I heard someone singing a Taylor Swift song in Scots when I was 12 years old, that would have went far for helping my sense of identity and helping me feel like I fit in a wee bit more. Because nowadays, kids have got like Harry Potter and Scots, they've got like the Gruffalo and Scots, they've got Peppa Pig, Diary of Wimpy Wayne, the Egypt. They've got all that media and Scots that I didn't have growing up. Yeah. And I think that the mere content and media that we make in Scots, the mere normal it is, it wouldn't be news. It wouldn't be, oh, there's a Taylor Swift song in Scots. It'll be like, oh, there's a Taylor Swift song in Scots. Like, yeah. it wouldn't be news to do things like this. That's but right. someone needs to do them first. Someone needs to do it. And when I t- when I tamed the song to the band, they were like, no way, no way, no <laughs> way. Don't don't put us on the credits. It's going to ruin our career. Literally, that's what Graeme Rory said. Um, but by the end of it, we were all we were all jamming. It was it was great. Um, but I'll, I'll send you that. I'll send you it. And also, I've um, I've written a new Scott song, but not in the folk genre in a pop structure. And it sounds uh, the the lyrics are hellish. They are awful. They're absolutely awful. But when you listen to it, it's got a catchy hook, a catchy chorus. It's written. You know, it's a pop song. It's got your verse, your pre-chorus, your chorus, your bridge, your verse. Like, it's a pop song. It yeah. sounds like a pop song. Um, and it's really catchy. I hate to say it. Like, unbelievably catchy. The lyrics are awful. The story is awful. The narrative is awful. It doesn't make sense. But it's a pop song. It's in Scots language. And it's catchy. And that's the, that's the only thing that matters, is that it's going to raise the profile of Scots. Um so yeah, but it sounds it's hellish. Like it's really bad. <laughs> what you've described there is some of the greatest pop music of all time. Is it all of those things that you've ticked off? Catchy as anything, you can't stop singing it, but you don't want to maybe put it up forward for a literary honor or something like that. But it's, yeah. it actually chimes with what's I was read, going back and reading the uh, press release from the Bleak Midwinter, and at the bottom it says, "If you hear Scots sung." it's almost always in either the folk or tr- traditional. Um, whereas in Wales, you know, we have there's a few pop bands, Griff Rees and, uh, you know, Super Furry Animals and other people as well, dance musicians who do use um, Welsh. And I was thinking about that because there was, I can remember seeing the Proclaimers for the first time and going, the accent, oh my God, no one does that. But it was just the accent. It wasn't really a use of Scots. Yeah, they weren't singing in Scots. It was just the dialect. It was yeah. the accent. Exactly. Um, Twin Atlantic too. That's, yeah, that's, that's right. One. And I was thinking there was a few bands came through and you think, oh, they're, but they were, they were singing, instead of singing in a kind of, American accent, which was the norm for a lot of the kind of 70s, 80s. Uh, but even now, do you not think it's really refreshing to hear a band embrace their own accent instead of putting on a mid-Atlantic accent for singing and then speaking in Scots? Because I love Louis Capaldi's music, but he speaks in Scots. He's one of the best advocates for the Scots language ever because his Instagram's just him speaking in Scots half the time. But then when he sings... He dilutes it, he anglicises, he Americanises it. And I think, hmm, you know what? You're missing a trick here, son. You really are. 
Um, but yeah, the Proclaimers really paved the way for that. But they weren't a singing in Scots per se. It was just more their their dialect. Well, but let's talk about um, Scots and why you uh, um, promote it uh, in the way that you do. And we can talk about our advice, the campaign for the legal recognition of the Scots language as well. Why was this something you felt passionate to do? Well, I just think the, the way that I grew up was constant celebration of culture, yet self-censorship of my own accent and dialect at the same time. I mean, I come from a single family, you know, working class council house estate. I'm not, I'm not um, ashamed to say it at all, but like I often find that Scots dialect or the Scots language um, often has, you know, stigmatisms attached to it. Folk will make a judgment on you and your education based on the first five words that you say and the dialect that comes out your mouth. And I thought that that's, that's shameful. And I remember being able to listen to Robbie Shepherd on the wireless and I thought, wow, if he can do it, that'd be, that's cool. Yeah. But since, since he retired, there is nobody on BBC Radio Scotland, we are, you know, consistent Aberdeenshire Angus Fife um, dialect yeah. or accent or, you know, speaking in Scots. You might hear the lads on Off the Ball speaking in Scots mm-hmm. a wee bit, but that's not a serious programme. It's not a news programme. It's not to be tamed seriously. It's a football show. Um, so for me, I, I saw the underrepresentation of folk that speak Scots. I thought that's a shame because... I mean, I love the Gaelic language. I think that we're hand in hand. We learn a lot from each other. This isn't putting, you know, uh, supporting Scots isn't putting doing Gaelic at all. We can learn the Gaelic um, language policy totally. But they they have amazing organisational skills and broadcasting and media power, which serves, um, you know, 1% of Scotland. Um, most of the, the people who watch BBC Alba are actually abroad. Um, which is really exciting and really cool for the language, but it doesn't serve a lot of the people in this country. Whereas there's 30% of the population who can't seem to switch the TV on or the radio on and feel represented. And that's why I wanted to get involved with change in the language policy. Um, Because if you do pass a Scots Language Act, then it means that language, the Scots language will be written into equality um, and, and diversity policies, meaning that People can't be um, discriminated against in the workplace or in institutions or, you know, you, you can't have that quip being like, what, what are you saying? Eh? Eh? Like that thing can't happen anymore. It would be discrimination as it is right now. Mm-hmm. But um, but I think that the Urvice thing are really, really good. They're, I mean, the committee um, formally constituted last year and we're a way to start a a huge campaign called the Scots Pledge. And we're targeting all of the candidates to try and get them to sign the Scots Pledge saying, if I'm elected, I promise to look out for um, the interests of the Scots language. We're not asking them to sign a Scots Language Act yet because we still need to put through the legislation, but we're making sure that the candidates are aware and this is a cross-party approach. So we've got candidates signed up from all of the parties. This is no national, you know, mm-hmm. this is not an SNP thing. Gaelic Language Act was put through by the Labour government. Yeah. Yet people, you know, use 
um, use that as they forget about that. They call Scott's uh, SNP agenda, and it, it's no because some of some of the best um, advocates of Doric and Scots have in the Scottish Parliament are MSPs like Peter Chapman. He's a Tory MSP for the North East. This is isn't a national, you no. know, an SNP thing at all. But um, we are approaching all of the candidates to try and get them to sign the Scots pledge to say you know, we are going to um, put the interests of Scots speakers into the chamber and we'll uphold that. But having an act is really important because um, the more the more um, platforms that recognise Scots, the more we can say to the naysayers, oh, well, it is a language. Because mm -hmm. right now, um, linguists find it extremely difficult to distinguish dialect and uh, vernacular and language. It's very difficult. Um, but yeah, we can look to the Scandinavian languages and see that they're all mutually intelligible, but they're all recognised, promoted and protected in their own right. Yeah. Mama was really surprised why people are so keen to say Scots isn't a language. Why do you care so much? But it's all wrapped up in that thing about representation. And it's actually historically... You know, I mean, you can go even go back to, to when, you know, Burns saved Tam O'Shanter, which is a right roaring, uh, fantastic example of Scots. But right bang in the middle, you've got two stanzas of almost or perfect English almost, if you like, which mm. because that was seen as the high minded, the, the different level. It's OK to write the body stuff, as you say, perhaps on radio with off the ball, if it's comic or it's sport, then that's OK. If it's banter, it's OK. But. It has to be used across the board. It has to be represented everywhere, is, is my thoughts on the matter anyway. I think so. The difficult thing is, is that I still self-censor. I mean, I'm speaking English to you most of the right now because I just don't, oftentimes I feel uncomfortable. It's really, it's strange. It's all to do with the fact of you emulate who you're speaking to. And, you know, there's, it's really interesting. Because um, if I go back to Huntley for like, a week. I come back to Glasgow and it's just like full board auric. But it's also in different situations. Like I found that, you know, when I moved to Glasgow and I started working on, you know, different arts boards and stuff, and, you know, I'd go down to London for musicians union meetings or whatever. And I would be like the young female in the room representing folk music. And everyone else was like, you know, the middle class, middle aged men representing classical music, you know, the heads of the orchestras and they were all, you know, speaking good English. Mm -hmm. I felt so uncomfortable, like I felt so awkward and out of my depth already that I thought that if I was speaking, you know, if, if I didn't self-censor myself and speak proper, proper, I'm, yeah, I'm yeah. quoting, air quotes, then I wouldn't be, like my points at the board table wouldn't be taken seriously. That's ridiculous. If I make the point in Scots or I make the point in English, if it's a good point, it should be a good point, regardless of how I put it across. Um, but yeah, it's just, it's sad that this class thing, you know, if you speak Gaelic, you're bilingual. But if you speak Scots, you're uneducated, you're speaking slang and you can't speak English. Like George Galloway, constantly, like he's he's on it saying, oh, you're uneducated Scots because you, you don't speak proper English. I'm like, English literally came from middle Scots. Like English wouldn't be around unless there was middle Scots. In fact, the, the language of the UK was not English, it was Welsh. And like people just, the people who are the naysayers for Scots are the group of people with a lovely Rangers logo in their Twitter bio and 
they're the same people that, yeah, it's it's an issue. It's been politicised and it's been polarised and it shouldn't be, but unfortunately it is. Over in Northern Ireland, the Ulster Scots kind of language thing has been politicised to the hilt mm. and it should not be at all. Yeah. It is it's so ridiculous. It should just be a language for, for everyone to choose to use or choose not to use. But there's so much socio-political issues that Scots faces that Gaelic didn't face. Gaelic faced oppression from the British, absolutely, 100%, but it doesn't face class stigmatism at all, as much as Scots. <laughs> yeah, no, that's right. And it's, uh, it's interesting, I think, that your um, background is in music and you, you've got the traditional thing where it's actually accepted, I think, but, you know, we've said perhaps not in, in other forms. My background's kind of the Scottish literature and... There has been the same struggles there, and it, it is getting better. In fact, on my desk, I'm reading Eli Percy's Duck Feet, which is uh, written in uh, Scots, and in fact, was the recipient of the 2020 Scots Language Publication Grant. So, Amazing. yeah, so people, you know, there are moves forward, but it's a story that not just you've told, and I know, and my parents knew. My mum was from Dumfrieshire and was told off, you know, do not, not speak that way. That you are speaking, you know, that's not the way to do it. But it's it's this kind of older time, and it is about keeping, whether people mean to or not, it's about keeping people suppressed. I think so, unfortunately. But it's just this idea that now there is a renaissance and a resurgence. You know, in schools, there's some teachers who, of their own volition, have really pushed the Scots language, and that's amazing. Not pushing it onto kids. No, not pushing it onto kids. Um, enthusing and encouraging the kids that already speak it. You know, in the Northeast, I remember at primary school and even secondary school, the way that folks spoke in the playground was completely different to how they'd speak in class. And I just thought it was mental. It was so strange because, you know, all the farmers that would come in from like Clat and Knefment and all that, you know, they'd speak like broad Scots in the playground and then they would self-censor in class. And I thought it was, it was madness, like total madness. Um, but yeah, there's, things are getting better. I mean, the fact is the Scots Language Awards have happened, the Spotify thing's happened, Len Penny exists now, she didn't before. Um, we've, we've got more press now in the last two years around Scots Language than, than there has been in the probably past 20 years. And I think a lot of the old guard of Scots Language activists um, are pretty critical of our vice and all of us, we're, we know, the thing, they think that we're like youngins that don't know what we're speaking about. But the thing is, is on our board, we, um, our chairman is a lawyer. Um, you know, we've got folk who are pretty up to speed. Um, we've, got, we've got three, four doctors on the board, three people who've got doctorates in linguistics. Um, that's pretty cool. We've got people from all cross sections of of the society uh, on, on the board. And it's not just youngins, we've got, I think I'm the youngest at 23 and I think our oldest board member is in his seventies. So for the old guard of Scots language activists to say, oh, well, you're just youngins, they're so wrong. And the thing is, is that they have this idea that, you know, we've been fighting for this for years and years, what are you going to do? But the thing is, is that they've been fighting for it, what, since the seventies, doesn't, doesn't act exist? No, it does not. 
But the thing is, is they don't like to see change. They don't like to see, it's the same with traditional music. The old guard, yeah. you know, don't, don't like things to move forward. They like things to be done how they've done it. And they can't deal that society's changed and the way that we interact has changed. Um, but I think we will get an act um, in the next parliament. I, I definitely think that it's it's worthwhile. And, you know, I think it's even in the midst of coronavirus and, you know, a pandemic, we've seen through the press that it is a relevant thing, like it is really relevant because it's not it's not about a cultural, um, you know, farce. It's, it's just about the way that folks speak and to give people encouragement and tell them it's okay to speak like that. You don't need to change yourself. You, you know, the way that you speak is actually, it's a gift, it's a skill. Um, I think that will really help the confidence, especially within younger kids. That's really important. Because um, if they have confidence in the way they speak and the way that they are and where they, where they come from, that's important. Um, but the thing is, is that there's, that for that to happen, there needs to be major shifts in broadcasting and media. They need to see more people like them on the TV, more people with with accents and dialects and using little bits of language that is more relatable to them. Yeah. I'm not asking for BBC Scots, okay? I'm not asking for that. No, 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 no. We're, we're asking for more presenters on mainstream BBC and mainstream TV to be able to have these dialects and accents and speak a little bit of Scots because it's mutually in intelligible. Gaelic is binary. You either speak it or you dinner. Simple. Mm -hmm. It's one and zero. It's binary. This has got this continuum where you can speak in Scottish English, just pure English, but in a Scots accent. And then you've got at the other end of the spectrum, you've got full Scots. Now, I don't speak in full Scots. I think Billy Kay is probably the person that I know the most that would speak pure and full Scots. But most other people speak in this hybridization Sorry. along the continuum. And it's called code switching between English and Scots. And that, that gives people the ability to, to understand it through context. So I'm not asking for a, a TV channel or a weather channel in Scots. That's ridiculous. We don't want that. What we want is more presenters to be able to, to speak in Scots on the radio and on the TV. Because right now, you know, you turn on BBC Radio Scotland and as great as it is, we've got Glasgow and Edinburgh and a token Highlander. I've got a token Highlander in there, especially when it comes to music. But after Robbie Shepherd's departure from BBC Scotland, there hasn't been a Doric, a Doric speaker on there since, mm -hmm. on, a, on a weekday programme. And people should be allowed to speak as they want to speak, no matter where they are, and be taken equally as seriously. And, you know, differences should be welcomed and embraced, and that's what makes... Well, in fact, I remember the first time I met someone from Aberdeen when I was in my teens, and uh, it did take me about 24 hours to understand what they were saying because these, these were different words which had a different meaning to how I understood them. But then you do, you get to know, you understand. In the same way as the first time I read Trainspotting, it took me about four or five chapters to work out what's going on here. Mm -hmm. So, you know, these are things that should be encouraged, I think, not, not flattened out. And it is a skill. Literacy in Scots is a huge skill. Yeah. Um, I mean, I grew up reading like Sheena Blackhall and Ian Middleton and Charles Murray and J.C. Milne poetry, which was written in, in Doric. Um, and then when I started reading more Burns stuff, I was like, oh, this is completely different. 
And then, you know, when I pick up, you know, Harry Potter and Scott's, you know, Matthew, Matthew Fitt has translated it into what he believes is, you know, his dialect and his standard. And then it's completely different to then I'd read Jenny Godley's book and she would be writing it in, in her dialect. Being able to understand and read all of them is a huge skill. But exactly. um, to write it is also, it's a spoken thing. Luckily, I have the skills because ballads, often I learn them, you know, through ancient manuscripts. So I would be able to read the old Middle Scots. So I've probably got more skills in reading ancient Middle Scots than I do with contemporary written Scots. Mm -hmm. But it's a skill nonetheless to be able to read something like that. And I just think that if, I can't believe that um, Jacob Rees-Mogg called Scots and Welsh foreign languages. I can't believe it. Meanwhile, he's happy with Boris Johnson putting Latin out in the, in the chamber. I just think that the hypocrisy of some, of some of the leaders when it comes to language policy is they have no clue. And it just goes to show that eloquency and, you know, spick and proper does not equate to education. Because mm -hmm. what does he know? It's not a foreign language. It's it's the language that was here before. But yeah, I div I diverge, but I think it's just tiring to see all these comments. I've blocked all the all the haters on Twitter. They're they're blocked. They're totally blocked. So I don't see any of the negative stuff. I try yeah. not to look at it. Yeah, because that's that. I just don't understand the strength of feeling, but then I do understand it. And there's lots of you know reasons behind it, as you've mentioned. Um, I'm interested going back to the music. Um, you were saying how um, at the conservatoire it was, or you were talking about an older garden traditional music. But it does seem to me that um, uh, that your generation of people who are working in folk uh, or in the, the traditional music, there's a lot of invention and a lot of new stuff and a lot of crossing. It's a very exciting time for that kind of music. I think so. And five years ago, I would have been like, I'm not sure about that. Because I was conditioned with the like, Burns is too contemporary. You have to sing an old ballad and it has to be unaccompanied. You know, I was I was brought up with that traddy conditioning that I was very like, I didn't like neo-trad and I didn't like, you know, contemporary stuff. I thought that Fairport was too contemporary. Like I was super, very traditional. And now I'm, I'm open to anything because, you know, moving to Glasgow and going to the sessions and all that, you soon realise that you have to be on board with this carrying stream. You can't be stuck in the past. Um, but yeah, there's loads of, you know, Galactronic has a great genre, you know, electronic Gaelic music. I wish I could do a project which would tick Scots into that. Um, I know that there's a thing, Bothy Bass, um, which it sounds really cool. Uh, I like what they're doing with the Bothy Ballads. It's awesome. But um, Galactronica seems like something that could be commercially released and really, really successful, and it is. And I think we need something like that for Scots. Um, you know, I just, there's loads of stuff happening at the moment and there's loads of really cool bands doing the contemporary, innovative, electronic, electric stuff. And I'm all for that because it's going to raise the profile of the genre. I mean, this year, you know, when that sea shanty thing came off, all the folk musicians were like, hello, we've been here forever. Like, we've literally been doing, like, Fisherman's Friends were like, we did this years ago. There's a film about us. Yes. And, you know, it just goes to show that, you know, viral stuff can really get, you know, uh, commercial attention to the genre. Um, but unfortunately, you know, I actually haven't watched an, an interview of him mentioning the F word at all. He's never mentioned, 
the T word. He's, I've never seen him do an interview where he's mentioned tradition and folk, mm-hmm. and that's the very genre that he's made a hit in. Yeah. Um, so it, it goes to show that you really, when you're working with traditional music, you can do whatever you want, but you have to have authenticity and integrity and respect for the tradition. Absolutely, that is the most important thing. And I guess this is where like my kind of traddy old guard roots, I sound like an old guard member now, but I do think that authenticity and integrity is really, really key to making sure that you're standing on the shoulders of giants yes. and not not treading on, on anyone, mm-hmm. um, but also respecting them too. But I, unfortunately, he has made sea shanties popular again, but I don't think he has kind of um, raised the profile of the community of practice very well uh, in his media work. So, I, I mean, I'm, I'm happy to say that on record because I, I just don't, I don't believe he has done that. He's had so many opportunities to say, hey, this is a tradition of more England than Scotland, but it comes from the folk song tradition. It comes from the, you know, the men going out to sea and all that kind of stuff. Uh, folk is a really vibrant community. Um, he hasn't done that. And that's a shame because he could have really helped out people by, by doing that. And when you were talking about the um, lecturers who inspired you at the Conservatoire, and it does seem to me that a lot of the musicians who have come out of that institution have exactly what you say. They are told where they're coming from, where the music's coming from, the background, and that almost allows them to go and do new things with it. Yeah, I think like you have to have that grounding in tradition and then go and do other stuff. So even now when I'm away to like arrange a new ballad or a new song, I first have to learn it unaccompanied and sing it as if I'd sing it unaccompanied at like a folk club and then I'll play, play around with it. It's just like a thing that I have to do because if I can sing it unaccompanied, then I can do whatever with it. But I first need to sing into it and understand, you know, the context and the way to deliver it. And I think that's that works. That's that's important. But um, I guess the same with like we've also translated a Richard Thompson song and put it into Scots. Um, so that's that's important. And if you're singing songs that other people have written, it's even more important to um, make sure you're doing it justice and yeah. not to take it out of context and to pay respect to the songwriter as well as um, the song in itself. Um, so are you able to have any plans for the near future, music or otherwise, or is just everything kind of on hold apart from releases? Everything is everything is on hold. So I think my my main focus has been like the past year's been great because I've been able to work with your advice loads. And if I was yeah. on tour, I wouldn't have been able to do it. So I think my focus is on releases. I'm trying to reschedule things into 2022 now. But to be honest, I'm so confused, like between all the agents and all of the like countries and all of the some yeah. things are some things are cancelled, some things are postponed, some things are 2021, some things are 2022. I've just I've just ignored my emails because it's easier just to do that. <laughs> to be yeah, honest. And it could all twist and turn again by the time, you know, six months is over. Yeah, there's no point like doing all that admin for it to be cancelled again. So I'm just going to like basically turn my laptop off for like a good, good wee while longer. But no, I've been focusing on like weekly, like taking things week by week yeah. and not trying to uh, work ahead, to be honest. That's the only thing that's kept me sane over the, the lockdown period but in Glasgow we've been in lockdown since literally October like people are forgetting that that it's in Glasgow it's been a long haul it hasn't just been since January it's been a good six months now um 
And I think that's, it's pretty grim. But to be honest, this time last year, not this time last year, but January time last year, I had just got back from New Orleans. I moved flats. I had knee surgery, had a kettle gig. I had, all I had in front of me was like gig, 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 gig. I had no time to figure out what the next plan was. It was just gig, gig, gig. So like, I'm really thankful of this time because yeah. I figured out what the next step is. Like I've made some kind of music in the meantime. And last year I had no plans for a second album. And, and now I do. And now I've got the money for a second album. And then I didn't because I didn't have enough time to do anything because I was just constantly on the move. So I think there has been silver linings for some people depending on what you've done because I know some musicians who have been really active and like on it and like making new music and releasing stuff and doing live streams and making patrons and whatever and I know some musicians who have just kind of they've struggled they've shut off they've just been like nah nah nothing um and I think that you had to really be proactive and I think I have been proactive which is good but that's just the kind of person that I am like I have to be busy I cannot be doing nothing um I have to be doing a hundred things um, if I stop, then I I stop for good. Like I have to, be, I'm like a shark. Yeah, that's the fear. Yeah, if you don't keep moving, you sink. <laughs> yeah, I'm totally like a shark. Um, but I actually, I don't know. I do. I feel better. The weird thing is, I feel better about my career now than I actually did last February before the pandemic. So, yeah, I think I've had time to figure stuff out, which is nice. I think weird. Well, Iona, thank you for taking time to have a chat with me today. I've really uh, been a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for having me. It's been really nice. And I love I love what you're doing. It's really, you're supporting, you know, artists and independent artists at that. So thank you very much. Oh, thank you. And we'll be back soon with someone completely different. Cheers. Mm-hmm.